listening to the White Oak Houston podcast, the official podcast of White Oak Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. White Oak exists to help people come alive to the wonder of the gospel and fully follow Jesus. For more information, please visit us online at whiteoakchurch.net. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. In this victorious moment, as we've given to the Lord, this morning as we read his word, it's a reminder of what he's given to us. This morning in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, we're going to read uh, the second part of the Christmas story this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to just look at the words on the screen behind me. But this is God's word for us. As now when they had departed, they being the Magi, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I've called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. You can be seated at this time. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Well, I want to welcome you here this morning to the White Oak Faith family. Uh, What a powerful morning of worship and singing and giving. And if I have not had uh, the privilege of meeting you this morning, my name is James Yandel, and I'm the uh, discipleship pastor here at this church. And uh, I just want to say I'm so glad uh, that you are here this morning. Uh, I'm glad that you've chosen to worship with us. And I hope that this morning uh, is a time when you're able to find God and follow Him in your life, no matter where you're at. But I want to give us an opportunity this morning to talk a little bit uh, with our neighbors. And I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to give you the opportunity to share with someone around you the answer to this question for you. And my question this morning is, what do you hope for this Christmas? It might be something material. It might be something immaterial. The question is, what do you hope for this Christmas? I want you to take about 30 seconds to a minute, share with someone around you, what are you hoping for? Don't be shy, you can be honest. It's an iPhone 10, it's an iPhone 10. All right, wrap up a little bit. 
All right, so as you're wrapping up, I'll just share very briefly what I'm uh, interested in, what I'm hoping for this Christmas season. For me personally, it's some relaxation. Uh, My wife and I just moved into a new apartment, and uh, Christmas is always a busy time, uh, especially being a pastor and and just having all the family things and church services. So I'm really hoping for some peace and quiet. But I bring up this idea of hope because I think everyone knows that Christmas is a time of hope. Right? Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, I think everyone recognizes that Christmas is about hope. And I believe that this morning, God wants you to have hope in your life. But I believe that the kind of hope that God wants you to have is a strong, robust, biblical hope. And I think the problem this morning is many of us have hope, but it's a very shallow hope. It's a hope that does not leave room for pain and for suffering in life. But I believe that this morning the kind of hope that God wants us to have is a hope that deals with pain and that overcomes the pain and suffering that we have in life. You see, our tendency at Christmas, and I've noticed this in myself, our tendency at Christmas is to try to recreate Christmas past. Do you ever feel like that? Like for many of us, Christmas as a kid was pretty awesome. I know that's not true for everyone here, but for many of us, we really loved Christmas as a kid. And it's like every year we're trying to recreate this Christmas uh, that we had as a kid, the Christmas nostalgia, the Christmas wonder. And I think Christmas does speak to nostalgia. It does speak to wonder, but I think Christmas also speaks to pain. And this morning, I think that if we can find hope in this Christmas story, in Matthew's Christmas story, then we can find hope in our own stories. I've entitled my sermon this morning, Finding Hope in the Other Christmas Story. And I I call Matthew's story the other Christmas story because I'm sure for you, you're probably more familiar with Luke's Christmas story, right? Luke's Christmas story has an angelic choir singing peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Uh, Luke's Christmas story has a baby in a manger. Luke's Christmas story has shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. And we love that story. In fact, my family and I, we read that story every year on Christmas Eve. Uh, We have some hot cocoa. We read it and then we go to bed. It's a wonderful experience. Well, the other, uh, I think it was last year or the year before, we decided to read Matthew's story on Christmas Eve. And we read the story, and we had cocoa, and it had all these things about Herod. And it, it was just a little unsettling, if I'm honest, right? You read Matthew's story, and it gives you whiplash, right? Instead of a nice manger, you have Jesus, the fugitive. Instead of angelic choirs, you have angels saying, run now, right? The baby is going to be destroyed Instead of animals lying in a manger, you have children lying in the streets. It's very off-putting when you read the story. And I want to talk a little bit for why there's some big differences between these two stories. But suffice it to say, at the very beginning, it's good to know that Luke's story is very narrow in focus. Luke's story focuses in kind of on that night, what happens on that night, a little bit before, a little bit after. But Matthew's story uh, focuses in not just on kind of that night in Bethlehem, but also a little bit after, maybe some months after, maybe even a few years after Jesus was born. And so that's why there's kind of some differences. I like to use this analogy. Luke's story is like zeroing in on the story of your wedding day. Uh, not to up, uh, shoot John, but it's my wife and I's anniversary today. Uh, so we're excited. Uh, 
John's such an awesome guy. John performed our wedding on his birthday last year. So now for years to come, we're always going to have the same uh, our anniversary and his birthday. But anyway, telling Luke's story is like telling the story of your wedding day, right? It's very nostalgic. You can probably mention a lot of good things that happened on that day. Matthew's story, on the other hand, is like telling the story of the first year of marriage, right? That, that's a little bit more raw, a little bit more pain in that story of your first year of marriage. That's kind of what Matthew is doing. He's giving you the whole picture, what happened around Jesus' birth. But the reason I love Matthew's story is because I believe that for many of you in here, you relate more to Matthew's story than Luke's story, right? Christmas comes around and you look at everyone else and they're joyful. They're getting presents. They're having holiday parties, all these different things. But for you, uh, it's not that joyful of a time, right? They're getting decorations down from the attic. And for you, it's like every year Christmas is calling up dead hopes and dreams, right? You have this kind of pain that comes with Christmas for many of us, right? And that's why I love Matthew's story and why it's in the Bible. But I think this morning, if you relate to Matthew's story, which I call the other Christmas story, right? Everyone's over here in Luke's Christmas story. You're over here in the other story. And if you're in that story this morning, I think that God has hope for you. God wants you to be optimistic. God wants you to be hopeful. He wants you to have peace in your life. But I think the problem is, for many of us, the reason that we don't have hope is because we're believing in a very shallow Christmas story. I think a shallow Christmas story gives you a shallow Christmas hope. You see, we think Christmas is all about just having this picture-perfect life. It's about a quiet scene in a manger, angels over us. But in reality, Christmas also speaks to our pain. God wants you to have a robust hope in your life. A hope that is not tossed and turned by the circumstances of your life. A hope that can withstand a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or bad years even. And I think if we do anything wrong with the Christmas story, it isn't that we don't, or Christmas time, it isn't that we don't have enough Christmas songs, or we don't have enough Christmas uh, services, or whatever it is, but I think in reality, we don't have enough pain in our Christmas story. There's not enough suffering in our Christmas story. Maybe you could even say there's not enough evil in our Christmas story. And yet when you think about it, without evil, there is no Christmas, Right? Jesus would not have been sent into the world if the world hadn't been so broken by evil and our own brokenness. His coming is a direct response to evil. And while we may not include enough pain in our Christmas story, there's certainly more than enough pain and evil and suffering in the world to go around. And I'm sure that you have personally experienced, seen, felt, heard, or watched from afar many of the evils that bombard our world every day on your newsfeed. Or maybe for you, you have personally experienced and seen and felt and lived out the effects of sin on this world and in your life. And I think in the same way that shallow friendships lead to, or shallow friends lead to shallow friendships, a shallow Christmas story leads to a shallow hope. This morning, we sang songs of Jesus' triumph over evil and over death. Far from being just a story about this like little baby being born and having shepherds around them, Christmas is God's counteroffensive against the deeply entrenched powers of evil in our world. That's what Christmas is about. God is overcoming. This is what Christmas is about. Christmas is God's answer to every injustice that you have ever felt or that you have ever committed. 
Christmas is the intersection of peace and of conflict. Right? On the one hand, you have Luke's story, this quiet night with angels singing. You have all this peace. On the other hand, you have Herod, this paranoia, our paranoid evil ruler trying to destroy the baby. And we see Herods in this world even today. We even see Herod in ourselves. And I'll talk about that here in a moment. But Christmas is the intersection of these two things. The birth of Jesus turns the cold war between good and evil into an all-out hot war. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I believe that God wants us to be hope-filled people. We have a phrase around here on the staff team. We say God calls us to be eternal optimists. But in order to do that, we have to know a few things about hope. This is our problem with hope. This is how we approach hope. We like to build a mirage, a vision of the life we want. Right? All the things we want in our life, all the things we don't want in our life, and then we put our hope in that. And we set ourselves up for failure because we just have too high of expectations of the circumstances of our life. This morning, if you want to have hope, you got to know this. And this is kind of backwards. I'm going to work us through it, why this is true. But you cannot have hope in your life and have control over your life. It's just not possible. You see, the more we try to control our life, the more disappointment we find, the more we find that the things we're trying to control end up controlling us, right? You try to control a relationship, you try to control your finances, you try to control your future, and this mirage, this vision ends up controlling you. I want us to look really quickly here at verse 13, and we're going to read just that verse and kind of set the stage for this idea of hope. So if you look back with me there, uh, it should also be on the screen. So now when they had departed, this is the Magi, it said, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. This morning, if you're taking notes, and I want you to write this down, if you're looking for hope this morning, I believe that you find hope when you lose control. You find hope in your life when you lose control over your life. And we're going to see this played out in Joseph's life. And we're going to compare this man named Joseph with King Herod, right? And remember last week, John mentioned King Herod. Uh, and what did we do when he mentioned King Herod? We booed. All right, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to let you get it out right now. I'm going to mention King Herod. King Herod, you're going to be able to do it once, all right? So just get it all out right now. King Herod. All right. We know he's a bad man. We're going to get into just kind of how bad he was. But let's talk about Joseph. Joseph is a guy that we don't focus on a lot in the Bible, and that's partly because, you know, we believe, scholars believe that he probably died uh, at an early, when Jesus was at an early age, and so he's not really mentioned later on in the Gospels. But Joseph was a good man. Joseph was a man who obeyed and loved the Lord. Joseph was a man who obeyed the Lord even as he was losing control over his life. I want you to put yourself, just put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a moment. You're engaged to this woman, right? You're a good man. You're engaged to this woman. And then she comes to you, or an angel comes to you and said, hey, uh, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit, and the child's going to be the Savior of the world, but don't divorce her. Just stick with her. Don't worry. It's going to work out. There's some control being lost right there, probably, if that happened to you, right? But he goes with it. He's like, okay, I'll obey the Lord in this, and I'll stay with her. 
Then what happens, right? The baby is born, good things are happening, and then after that, his family becomes a target of the political leader of the land that they're living in. And Joseph isn't a powerful man. He's a, he's a peasant, pretty much, right? And the king over the whole land has singled out his family to kill this son, this child. And so God comes in and says, guess what? I need you to leave the land that you know, go into the land of Egypt, Right? And scholars say that this probably was about a 145-mile journey. And so you have kind of this newborn baby, or this baby is very young, right? And they have to travel 145 miles, probably mostly on foot, right? Just reminded me that Christmas means we're always going to travel for family and for holidays and all that kind of stuff, right? But he has to travel all this way. He didn't ask for that. And then later on, he's got to move to a different place. So he's running from place to place to place. He didn't ask for this. And I think the problem is when we think about hope in the Christian life or when we peer into the Christian life and be like, man, I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of want to jump in because I know that God is going to give me peace. We think, you know what? God will never lead me into turmoil. Will he? He will. God will lead us often into turmoil. But here you have Joseph, this example of a man who says, you know what? I'd rather have hope in God than control over my life. That's what I think he would tell us if he were standing here. I think that he would tell you that having hope in God is better than trying to control the circumstances of your life. This is the way I like to think of it. I don't know about you, but I would rather have a certain future and an uncertain present than a certain present and an uncertain future. And that's what the Bible, that's what God offers to us. He says, you know what? Your future is certain. God works all things out for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He promises that for us. But he doesn't promise that our present circumstances are always going to look the best or that we're always going to understand them. But we're called to hope in God in these things. Joseph demonstrates that in this story. And it does work out. The baby is saved. Jesus grows up. He saves the world. Joseph is a part of great redemptive work in his life. Now let's contrast that with Herod. Herod's a bad man. Herod is a bad man. I want us to look at some of the things that Herod does. Herod's whole thing in this story is he doesn't want to lose control of his kingship, right? That was the whole thing. He's not a really a religious guy, but he's kind of a superstitious guy, right? So he hears about these prophecies about this king that's going to be born, right? And so he's kind of nervous about that. He's not religious, but he's like, you know what? If a baby's going to be born, he might grow up to usurp my throne. Might as well just kill him now, right? So that's what Herod's plan is. And then in the story, you see he gets tricked and there's a slaughter of the children. But I want to talk a little bit about Herod for a second, because there's a few Herod's in the Bible. You may be a little bit confused because there's a Herod after Jesus grows up. Not the same Herod. Different Herod. This Herod was known as Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was the king of the Jews under Roman authority from about 37 BC to about uh, 4 BC or so, around the time that Jesus was born, right? And uh, I had to do a little history on this. I'm going to read it exactly. I'm not a history buff, but this is what I was reading about Herod. It's just fascinating. It says, when civil war broke out in Rome between Mark Antony and Octavian, Herod first sided with Antony and his ally Cleopatra, queen of Egypt. Then when Octavian re, uh, defeated Antony and Cleopatra in 31 BC, Herod immediately switched sides, convincing Octavian of his loyalty. And of course, Octavian would later become Caesar Augustus from the Luke 2 story. And so you have Herod's rulership over the Jews as kind of like a political bone in his life. So he's a very cunning guy. He's a very devious guy. He's a shrewd politician. 
And in fact, the, uh, the historians say, people who have like, looked at his life say that he would kill a family member just as easily as he'd kill a friend or an enemy. So this thought that he would slaughter kids in the small Jewish village should not surprise any of us. Herod was a bad man. But I want us to do something this morning, and, and I think we kind of do this anytime we read stories. When you read the story of David versus Goliath, who do you most identify with? David. Okay. You're like, you're like, he's leading us somewhere. I don't want to fall into this trap. All right. In this story, we have Joseph and we have Herod. Who do you most identify with? Probably Joseph. And while none of us, I'm sure, in here are to the level of Herod, I do believe that Herod's core problem was that he didn't want Jesus to usurp his throne. And when you begin to think about that in your own life, you begin to draw some connections here. We like being in control over our life. We like being king over our heart and over our world. But in this story, we find that the more Herod tries to hold on to these things, the less control he has. And I think for us, so often when it comes to hope, we're so afraid that Jesus is going to invade our kingdoms, invade our lives, invade our plans, invade our desires, and we don't want him to do that. Right? We want to have control over our future. We want to have control over our lives. But Joseph demonstrates this man. He says, you know what? I'm going to give in to God's will for my life. I'm going to obey it. I'm going to trust that it works out. And in this story, though I believe that we most often probably really identify with Herod, God calls us to identify with Joseph. And it does work out. In the story, it says that Herod died a few years or maybe a few months after Jesus was born. And Josephus, who was a um, kind of historian of the Jews, he said that he died in a really dramatic way. Apparently, uh, he had something go wrong with his liver. He had ulcerated entrails. He had foul discharges. He had convulsions. He had a stench and something about worms. I don't know. It was a terrible death, right? And so in this story, it's sort of elevating Joseph as the man of God. And Herod and what happens when the true king is born. Now I want to look at something else, and I'll throw these um, prophecies up on the screen. I want to talk about these prophecies for a second, because in this story, you'll notice there's a lot of prophecies. And uh, we love prophecies in the Bible. We love prophecies around Christmas. I don't know if you ever heard someone say, or maybe you have heard, or you've said this before, man, Jesus fulfilled a lot of prophecies. And that's true. He did. It shows that God is true to his word and that Jesus was predicted. He's the true Messiah. But I think we forget something about prophecies. And I'll give you a little bit of theology here when it comes to prophecies in the Bible. Prophecies don't just predict future events. Prophecies draw up big themes of the Bible. And there's two big themes that these prophecies are going to pull up in this story. One is that God is the great deliverer over his people. And then number two is that evil is always resisting and evil is always kind of present in this world because it does not give up itself willingly. So I want us to look at these just really quickly. Verse 15, you'll see this prophecy out of Egypt I called my son. So this is originally found in the book of Hosea, chapter 11. This is an Old Testament prophet. Uh, he's speaking to God's people after they've been, are, are they're getting exiled into different places. They're experiencing a lot of pain in their life. And God is saying, you know what? Remember what happened when Moses delivered you out of Egypt, right? There's this big theme in the Old Testament that God delivered his people out of Egypt. And in the same way here, God is, Matthew especially, is pointing to Jesus and saying God is using this person to deliver God's 
people. There's this reminder that God is always delivering us out of the suffering that we face. And then there's this other prophecy, this one about Rachel weeping for her children. And this is from the book of Jeremiah. And it was a time of of great sadness in the people of Israel's life. They've been exiled. Many of their men and women and children have been killed. And so there's just like this reminder that evil is always resisting God's plan and what he's doing. And then there's this last one in verse 23. It says, what was spoken of by the prophets that might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. And this one's a little bit more tricky to get into because there's not an exact Old Testament prophecy about this. But essentially what Matthew is saying is that all the prophets who predicted Jesus were saying that he was going to be set apart for a great work of God. So you might read these prophecies and you're like, oh, well, I don't really care about these. I don't really understand these. But the point of these prophecies it's supposed to be this. Jesus is jumping out of the pages of the Old Testament saying, I am fulfilling all the things that you are hoping for in your life. I fulfill them. I overcome evil. I overcome death. I am your hope. I am your deliverance. I am your redemption. And in our own lives, we're called to look at the Word of God and to fall back on the Word of God when we don't know the way forward. I love this quote by John Bloom. He's a kind of a Christian writer and thinker. He says this. He says, When God's direction and purposes for us are unclear, His promises are always crystal clear. God frequently calls on us to stand on the rock of His promises and faithfulness in the murky, swirling fog of perplexing circumstances. I think far too often when it comes to our uncertain future and we're trying to put our hope, we're trying to control our future, we want God to give us some specific direction. But I think that we forget that God's promises are directional. God's promises do provide us direction, more direction than we give them credit for, right? Losing control and trusting God's promises are a huge step forward in holding on to a biblical hope. I know when I don't know the way forward, I know the things that God wants me to do. Love my wife really well. Love the church well. Honor him. Obey him. God gives us lots of direction in our life. And if you're going to have a robust hope, you've got to fall back on the hope, prophecies, and promises of God's life, or, or of your life. But not only that, but you, but you have to do this if you want to understand hope. You have to understand that pain is part of the story. I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to say, pain is part of your story. I won't ask you to do that, um, excuse me, I won't ask you to do that enthusiastically because, you know, it's hard to do that. But pain, pain is part of your story. And I hope that you understand that. I hope that you have a hope that recognizes that pain is part of your story. And I'm going to give you two reasons for why that is. Number one, God identifies with you in your pain before he rescues you out of your pain. The Christmas story, Jesus' whole life, is meant to show you that no one knows who you're, what you're going through better than Christ. Have you ever been going through something, like just a deep time in your life, something that's just like very painful or confusing or whatever it is, and you've gone to a friend and you're kind of talking to them about it and they're nodding like they understand, but you know they don't really understand what you're talking about. They're being a good friend, right? But you're like, deep down, they don't understand what I'm going through. The Christmas story proves that Jesus is not like that. 
On the flip side, when you go to a friend who's gone through the similar situation, maybe some loss in their life or maybe some pain and they've gone through it and you're talking and you're sharing and you're building this bond together that's just unbreakable because you both have gone through this before, that's what the Christmas story is between you and Christ. You have both gone through the story. This big word that we use, incarnation, which I'm sure you've used that about once a year, if ever, right? This big word, incarnation, God with us, is supposed to point to the fact that Jesus identifies with us, that Jesus can look at you in the face and say, I get it. No, 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 really, I get it. That's the purpose of the Christmas story. It's supposed to hit us in the face with the fact that Jesus became human in all of its miserable glory— Suffering, poverty, exhaustion, betrayal, grief, temptation, loss, suffering, feeling abandoned by God. Jesus experienced these things firsthand. A traumatic childhood, a political fugitive, death of his earthly father at an early age, totally misunderstood and rejected by his family during his lifetime. No place to call home, betrayed by his so-called friends, and death on a cross. I hope none of you die by death on a cross, but he experienced that. The Christmas story cannot be told in all of its brutal fullness without recognizing that Jesus jumped directly into the evil and mayhem that he came to fix. That's the purpose of the Christmas story. Jesus experienced these things. Jesus ain't a general who sends his troops into battle from a secure location. He goes out ahead of us. I love this in Matthew chapter 6, excuse me, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It says, when Jesus, he's an adult at this point, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this word compassion, if you don't know, if you go back to some of the Latin, literally it means to suffer with, to suffer alongside. And so Jesus suffers alongside us. But he doesn't just commiserate with us. And this is the second point of why it's good that pain is part of our story. Jesus doesn't just commiserate with us, but we experience pain because Jesus is dislodging evil in this world, and evil will not give up itself willingly. You think Herod was going to step down from the throne willingly? No, evil does not do that. Pride does not do that. And Jesus is curing us and is curing this world of this evil, and so therefore we experience pain. Quick story, uh, just to honor my wife a little bit. We, had, we went to Yosemite a few months back. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever been there. It was a really cool place, uh, really cool um, sites and all that kind of stuff. And we came across this river, and there was like this tree trunk that was like kind of over the river. And, you know, I'm first year of marriage, so I'm still trying to impress her at this point, right? So I, I get up there, and I begin to walk over the edge of the log, and I'm kind of like out over here, kind of over the water, right? And she's very impressed. She's like taking pictures of me and stuff like that. And I go back and I get a little cocky, right? And I'm like, well, why don't you try it, right? And so she gets out there and she, she I was very proud of her. She went very far uh, out over the water here, but she had her phone. I said, don't drop your phone. You know, I'm like joking with her while she's out there. And she's like, oh yeah, that's right. So she kind of gets back a little bit, a little bit back over land and she doesn't want to go all the way back. So she kind of sits down and she slides down 
the trunk and then hits the ground, right? Later on, she's like, man, my leg kind of hurts. And so we sit her down and she pulls up her leg, uh, pant leg, and she has splinters pretty much from like here up to this point. And they're like, they're all over like the side of her leg. And she's like, man, this is so painful. So we spent about an hour and a half tediously pulling out splinters in her leg. It was a terrible experience for her. I could feel the pain for her, right? But in this moment, I want to ask you a question. What would have happened if we had left the splinters in her leg? They would have got infected, right? It would have gotten worse. She wouldn't have healed. I think in the same way, that's what God is doing in our life. He's pulling out uh, self-interest. He's pulling out pride. He's pulling out the evil of this world. And that's painful, yes. But if it were to be left, it would be worse. This is what God does in our life. The cross proves that God had to do a dramatic work to overcome evil in our world. God wants you to have hope. And you've got to know two things if you're going to have hope this Christmas season. Number one is that you have hope when you lose control. And number two, you recognize that pain is part of your story. And this is a really big deal. It's a really big deal for you to have hope this Christmas season. Excuse me, it's a really big deal that you have a hope-filled life, not just for you, but for other people. And this is my final point. If you're someone in here who really likes to have like an action strategy for what to do in a sermon, I want you to listen in really quick here. I believe that we're called to be people of hope who bring hope to people. We're called to be people of hope who bring hope to, to, to other people. Louis Giglio is a pastor and he says this, simply by our proximity to Jesus, we can bring hope and life to people and places trapped in discouragement and despair. What a time of year this is. Everyone is looking at this day. Everyone has some sort of expectation, some sort of hope in this day. And what an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to say, you know what, why settle for hope on just one day of the year when you can have hope all year round? This is what we are called to do as followers of Jesus. So many people are centered on that day, and we have the hope that comes with it. How do you bring hope to people? I'll give you three steps, really easy. You want to bring hope to people this season. Number one, get near them. Get near them. This incarnation, this word incarnation means God with us. God became man. God drew near to us. And if you're going to influence other people, you have to draw near to them in your life. You cannot love someone from afar. You have to draw near to them. Number two, listen to them. Listen to them. I think we're so quick sometimes to speak to other people, to let them know it's the Christmas season and you better say Christmas, uh, Merry Christmas, because otherwise we're going to get angry at you as Christians. But we're called first and foremost to listen. Listen to the needs of our neighbor. Listen to the needs of your super conservative or super liberal uncle at the Christmas dinner table. Hopeful people don't always need to be right. They just need to be Christ's followers and to be abiding in him. What I love about Christmas is people get offended when people who don't know Jesus don't honor Jesus. And to me, it makes sense. If if someone doesn't know Jesus, if someone's not a follower of Jesus, then they're not going to honor Jesus. I don't expect them to. But oftentimes, I believe when people are sort of angry toward Christmas or angry toward Jesus or the story, they're not doing that out of a place of confidence and peace and joy. They're doing that often out of a place of confusion and hurt and pain. 
And what an opportunity to come in as Christians and share the hope that we have, a robust, anti-fragile biblical hope. So to draw to a close this morning, I want to share just another brief story uh, from uh, my marriage with my wife. And um, it, it comes actually from last year. I don't know if you guys remember, but last year I was going to school, finishing up seminary, and my wife and I were trying to plan our December wedding, and there was just a lot of stuff going on. It's a very difficult season for both of us, very trying, very difficult, very busy. And I remember during that season, part of what kept us going is we were thinking about Christmas morning. Like that thought kept us going. Just remember, we're, we're going to get to Christmas morning. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be wonderful. All we have to do is get there. And I remember this phrase kind of took on such a serious meaning in our life. It was so meaningful to us that my wife actually had it engraved on my wedding ring. And she had it engraved. It literally says in here, it says Christmas morning. And there's this phrase that's kind of stuck with me over the past year, and I think will continue to stick with me, that there is hope on Christmas morning. I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus in here, but if you're not, I want you to know that there is hope through Christmas morning. Not the day that comes every year, but through Christ who has come and who will come again. Some of you are in crazy seasons. I know it personally. You're in some crazy seasons right now. And I think that in order to have hope, you need to be reminded that it's just temporary. Christmas morning is coming in your life. Everything feels like a lifetime until it's over, right? Then it's over and then you like forget about it. If you're in a crazy season of your life, Christmas morning is coming God is redeeming you. God is delivering you. It's temporary. And some of you this morning are experiencing a pain, maybe the loss of a loved one who will not come back in this lifetime, maybe just some other deep experience in your life. And that's not going to go away in this lifetime. And I'm not going to promise you that it will. There are some pains that are temporary and you can put a bandage on them and they heal. And there are other pains that are chronic and that we have to live with. But if you're in here this morning and you have that type of pain, then you have to set your hope on that future Christmas morning when Christ comes again. The Bible says that in the same way that Christ came once, he will come again. We all have that hope that Christ will return, make all things right, turn our upside down world back right side up again. And if you're in here this morning and you have that chronic pain, I believe that Jesus is telling you, I understand. I just need you to hold on for a little bit longer. I'm coming back soon. I love you guys. And I hope that this morning that you do have that hope in your life. Don't root it on a day. Root it on what the day represents, that Christ has come into the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. And I thank you that you are a God who doesn't want to look at us from afar, but that you want to draw near to us. And you want to save us in our pain, come alongside us in our pain, and rescue us out of it. Lord, I pray for these people in this room, for everyone who's going through some sort of turmoil in their life, some sort of uh, confusion. 
that life has been upended by some event, Lord, I just pray that you might be physically present with them through the Holy Spirit, that you might give them hope, a robust, anti-fragile, biblical hope that says, you know what? I've got pain in this life and I've got suffering in this life, but Christ has overcome. God, may we be overcomers in this room. Hope-filled people who bring hope to other people. Bless us, Lord. Be with us and come again quickly and soon. We love you and it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.